Hello, I'm Nick Cater from the Menzies Research Centre and this is the Water Cooler Podcast. My guest today is Tim Montgomery. Tim is a, a well-known columnist. He's a conservative thought leader in the UK. He's the co-founder of the Centre for Social Justice, and we might talk about that later. He also is the founder of Conservative Home, the website, the commentary editor at the Times, uh, and most recently he was editor of Unheard, which is a, a website which I can't recommend highly enough if you haven't been on there. Uh, and he's just about to move on to something else. Welcome, Tim. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, what are you about to move on to, by the way? Well, it's a, it's a new project. I haven't even launched it in the UK yet, so I won't, if you'll forgive me, launch it <laughs> while I'm down here in Australia. Um, but it's essentially something that I've been anxious about, focused on for, for quite some time. Is you know We're living through a time of great political insurgencies. We're seeing all sorts of political rules, political regimes, political parties broken. And it's because voters are around the planet, particularly in the advanced Western democracies, um, are feeling unhappy with the existing settlement. And I don't think there's been an adequate philosophical, uh, organisational response from conservative, centre-right, uh, classical liberal parties. And this is going to be a place uh, online which is, does have an international focus, although it will be based in London, to try and answer what a, a new centre-right outlook is in this time of political insurgency. Well, we'll be signing up right away as soon as you give us the, the address. Look, it's really good to have you here. And you're here, of course, in Australia as a guest of the Centre for Independent Studies. And you're doing some events with them and a few other things around the country. It's great to have you here. A lot of people, I think, um, uh, have, have often turned to you and your writings as 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 to give them some sense of what's going on in the broader capacity. Uh, and you've always, I think, been seen in this country as somebody who understands not only conservatism, but what we quaintly call liberalism here, uh, I guess, is in many ways the same thing. So it's great to have you here, Tim. Well, thank you for um, having me on the podcast. Yeah, I did notice um, when I was doing a bit of research, you and I share the same alma mater, which is terrific, the University of Exeter. You studied economics, I think. Uh, yeah, I did economics and geography, although um, I majored in economics. And um, I was there 1988 to uh, 1992. And um, it, was a, it was a wonderful experience. It's a beautiful university, as I don't need to tell you, Nick, um, although it's transformed i don't know whether you've been back in recent times but massive building it's really doubled in size perhaps even tripled in size now in terms of numbers of students huge international presence but it was a time when um we were uh, with, with friends uh Sajid javid was one of my closest friends at university he's now the british home secretary uh, robert halfon he became a conservative mp uh, he's the chairman of the Education Select Committee in, in, in the House of Commons now, and David Burroughs, who was a Conservative MP for a number of years. So it was a, a rich political time for me, as well as an educational time. Mm, now we, we, I think, um, we probably worked out of the same building, the Amory building. I yeah. Think. yeah. Yeah, I, I was, um, I have to, I, I sort of, yeah. I'm embarrassed to admit this sometimes, not because it wasn't a great course to do, but it's sort of fallen out of popularity amongst Conservatives. I did sociology. 
but of course, it was a classical sociological yeah. department. You mustn't apologise for studying sociology. You, of course, the great conservative thinker Keith Joseph said that. I remember being at a lecture once with him, I think in Birmingham, and he was encouraging all conservatives to study sociology. He said it was an area which the right had failed to understand and master. So uh, he would have approved of your choice. Mm, I, like, I can't recommend it highly enough. I mean, I, I keep returning to those classical founders of sociology, um, Marx, more, more to Weber, and certainly to Durkheim. I think Durkheim helps us understand much about identity politics today. Uh, I wrote a bit about it in the book, but uh, let's not get to, too far down that track. We'll move on to, 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 to other more, more modern things. Um, You've been talking today uh, here at lunchtime on Brexit with Alexander Downer, the former foreign minister. This is a fascinating issue for me whenever I get invited on television and this is in the news and uh, they always ask me, they say, well, you'll know about Brexit because I've got a British accent and I I lived there until 30 years ago. Uh, But look, I I don't understand it, Tim. What I don't understand is is why it is such a heated issue, why it's the sort of issue that breaks up dinner parties and even families. Why, why has it become that kind of topic? How, how long have you got, Nick? <laughs> um, it's, it's certainly surprised me um, the extent to which it's divided opinion and the poisonous nature of it. And I think partly that was is because uh, when we voted to leave the European Union nearly three years ago now, in June 2016, it was decisive in favour of leave, but it was also narrow, if that makes sense. Uh, Britain voted to leave the European Union by 52% to 48%. And therefore, I think it was so close and so unexpected. You know, I I voted leave enthusiastically, but I didn't expect our side to win. I think the shock of defeat for Remainers, the narrowness of the result. And then I think the persistence of uh, the debate. You know, we haven't managed to leave cleanly. We still haven't managed to leave at all yet. It's prolonged the agony for everyone involved. And this is, of course, an era of um, social, the rise of social media as well, where there is all sorts of enmity between people. And, you know, we've seen it in, in, in multiple ways. And the combination of everything against that backdrop that we began with of general unhappiness with the political and economic settlement anyway, it's just turned into a toxic mix. And in Britain today, people identify themselves as leavers or remainers in much greater numbers or much greater intensity now than by traditional party allegiances so it is the way now britain is britain's define themselves in the in the public square and uh um it's ugly mm. it, it, it to, to me it seems go back to sociology again it, it's a totem it's a totemic issue it, it's the sort of thing that people hang their hat on and and identifies them uh, and in that in in issues like that it, it then takes on of course you know a very deep um, uh, meaning to people and you start getting these issues happening do you think it's a totem for the insiders versus the outsiders or you know David Goodhart of course I think put it best the somewheres and the anywheres I, I think the David Goodhart analysis is probably the the best one um, I think it's certainly a lot to do with attitudes towards Britain um, and so I think for many levers um 
there is a, a belief that Britain is part of a project that they don't want to be part of. A lot of them will say that the European Union with 27 member states on different political and economic cycles is inevitably going to become increasingly dysfunctional. Um, but that's only part of the argument. They want to leave as I wanted to leave because we feel Britain is big enough and strong enough and um, with enough um, qualities as a nation to look after ourselves. And so whereas the divorce might be uh, more painful than some of us uh, anticipated, the, the cost of and the transition cost of leaving will be worth it in the end and will be fine. But then there's the other on the other side of the argument that see Britain as um, a, a, a middle-sized, ordinary nation past its best, and that in a world of trading blocks where you know you've got USA, you've got China, um, that it's Britain is better being part of a big club that can fight for its um, place in the world. And of course, the, the European Union, four hundred million or so people, has um, a big internal market. And why would you not want to be a central part of that, shaping that market's rules? And but un, uh, away from those technical considerations, you're right. It's ultimately about: Do you think Britain is uh, strong and big enough to survive on its own, or is its best days behind it and it needs to, cl you know, join with others? And um, so that makes it that makes it quite um, uh, quite uh, much bigger than politics for people. I find it extraordinary that argument that you you mentioned that sometimes put that Britain is past its best. It's just a middle-sized power. Uh, you know, this sort of self-doubt that's crept into Britain. I guess really since World War II, um, it, it, it's so totally uh, mistaken. I mean, you only got to live in this side of the world to realise how important Britain still remains. It's it's a substantial economy. What is it? Sixth, seventh, fifth, or sixth? Yeah, yeah. fifth or sixth, depending on the level of the pound. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, it, an economy that's that's more than twice the size of the Australian economy, and we're doing pretty well here. Uh, but culturally too, you know, it, it's still central. Do they realise how much people in Australia uh, consciously or unconsciously look to Britain, look to things British as the model to do things, uh, you know, British movies? Uh, culturally, it's it's enormously important. Well, I'm sure you must have this in Australia too. It's a it's a blight, I think, across much of the Western world. But in so much of our in classrooms, in the education system, in a lot of the elite media, there is. Um, a shame about Western civilization. There's a shame about our past, and there is a lot to be shameful in in our past. But there's a lot to be incredibly proud of, as well. But one side of the story seems to to dominate, and you have in Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader, the leader of the opposition in the Britain, someone who seemingly always sides with Britain's enemies. You know, whether it's Russia or in the Middle East or. Argentina, he was very sympathetic with the IRA during the troubles in, in Northern Ireland. And I've been surprised at how little cost electorally there has been for him for that. And that's because I think a generation or two have gone through the British educational system, who've lived under a certain cultural antipathy towards Britain. We it, To regard Britain as special or better in some ways than other nations is sort of regarded as some sort of thought crime, some great political incorrectness and um i don't know Nick, you're much better judge of this than me but how much that's true in the australian system as well but there is a there is an idea that to um regard western civilization or britain as better than 
other forms of civilization or other nations is a, is is a, is, a, is a form of evil, particularly if you're a white middle class man, of course, expressing yeah, those I mean, views. It's, cer- it's certainly true here. The whole the whole idea of Western civilization is tremendously controversial for some bizarre reason. But it it just seems to me, uh, and I won't labour this point, but I'm interested in your thoughts. Self evident, self evident to me that. Uh, the traditions and culture that emerged from Britain at that particular time uh, in the in the 18th century that f- f- became the, you know, the Enlightenment, uh, the, the the Industrial Revolution that followed, that was responsible single-handedly for suddenly lifting mankind from a subsistence kind of existence to one where you know wealth grew at tremendous pace, and you and yet it's self-evident when you look at the growth in wealth, not just in Britain, but then consequently in the world as a result of all that. But that seems to be, I don't know, that evidence is denied, isn't it? Now? Yeah, it's denied. And uh, one aspect of it that I think is particularly uh, toxic for lots of the people who doubt it is the sort of the Judeo-Christian ethic at the heart of uh, Britain's past and uh, of Western civilization. And uh, we've just had this terrible tragedy in Sri Lanka with the churches attacked on Easter Day and maybe some people think it's only a small thing but I thought it was quite a revealing thing that both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama couldn't even in their tweets mention Christians but they talked about Easter worshippers you know they're sort of the the idea whereas um, in their response to you know the New Zealand um, the, 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 the murders of uh, Muslims in uh, Christchurch quite rightly they saw it as an attack on Islamic um, you know where islamic believers um but christianity is sort of out of bounds and i think it's all part of the same picture of not recognizing the fundamental pillars upon which a very great civilization was built you like me i think um we're agreeing too much here we are but i I, (laughs) we'll disagree in a moment tim don't worry about that but uh on this question of Christianity, I noticed the, from your Wikipedia entry that, that oh my you, goodness, <laughs> which called you an activist. How do you feel about being called an activist? Do you welcome that? Or I not? don't mind being called an activist, or and you know, I'm, I am a political geek. I love politics, and um, I love the certain things I really believe in. And um, I think what's well, an activist? They're really just actively fighting for those beliefs and those and those causes. And Brexit is certainly one of them. You know, I. I don't know what the average Australian would feel if um, they were part of a club that didn't allow you to control your borders. You couldn't decide who you let in and and, and when you let in. You had a court based in Indonesia or Tokyo or somewhere that could overrule courts in Canberra and and Sydney, where you were paying huge amounts of money every year to other countries and you didn't control how that money was spent because that's what Britain has had to put up with as members of the of the European Union and um, that fight for self-determination even though it's messy and somewhat embarrassing at the moment as, as Britain's place in the world it's worth it and so if that's what an activist is I plead guilty to being an activist but please don't read everything on my Wikipedia entry as necessarily authorised <laughs> I, I I know we have this problem ourselves. Uh, you know, other people who are not necessarily fans of yours can can end up writing your Wikipedia yeah, side if you don't, if you don't know. But it yeah. did mention, uh, and maybe this was meant as a slur too. I don't know. Mentioned that you you discovered evangelical Christianity in your teenage years. Yeah. How much do you think that's part of what what you know turned you into a a, a passionate political 
person. Um, my, politi- my politics came before my Christianity, actually. I was, um, so I'm, um, I'm 49 this year. I was born in 1970. And it was really, oh, this really is embarrassing, but um, sort of the age of 11, 12, I sort of became politically conscious. It was Margaret Thatcher's early years in power. And I saw this, um, well, actually, it came up from a disagreement um, with a school teacher. Um, my school teacher told me about these evil things called nuclear weapons. And I went back to my dad, who is an army and soldier, and I told him how embarrassed I was of him, that he was supporting these uh, nuclear uh, weapons and these weapons of mass destruction. And he introduced me to the idea of nuclear deterrence. And then there was this woman on the TV with very big hair and a handbag, and she was making similar arguments. And I kind of fell in love with this, uh, this woman's belief. Um, and then later, I became a Christian. And I thought, well, I give up my politics now because this is the most important thing. Um, this is eternal, whereas politics is temporal. There's something um, in that, of course. Of course <laughs> there is. Um, but um, I actually, William Wilberforce is probably my, if I had to define a personal hero, it, w- it wouldn't actually be Margaret Thatcher or someone of recent years. It would be William Wilberforce, um, a Christian who you know, exemplified what we were talking a little bit earlier about you know, some of the, the glories of Western civilization. Just as we got lots wrong, you know, the British Empire also used the Royal Navy to end slavery on the, on the high seas as well. And Wilberforce combined you know, he, he 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 combined his Christian beliefs with an idea that you had to be involved. Look, part of loving your neighbour was to um, be involved in uh, in relieving their pain and addressing their injustice in society as we live now. And that's why I I, I really stayed in politics and have tried to combine um, a, a, a Christian service and a, a political belief. This is this is to me is is very interesting as as somebody. Who, who considers himself a classical liberal, if, if I've got to put a label on myself. Because William Wilberforce was, to my mind, you know, one of the great examples of liberalism. Um, and, you know, what came out of the British Enlightenment, which was not just increasing prosperity and wealth, but in making society a more just place. And I'll, this, is, this is going somewhere, so bear with me for a second. <laughs> um, and... Uh, it, Robert Menzies, who you know we regard, I think certainly as the great um, intellectual exponent of liberalism in the modern era, he he said uh, once on the question of what his legacy should be, he said uh, that as a prime minister he would hope to leave Australia a more prosperous and just society. Now that I feel the word justice disappears from our narrative a bit and our thinking. Uh, which brings me to one of your former roles. You, you helped found the Centre for Social Justice. Uh, I love that name. I mean, because a lot of people in Australia, if you use that phrase, they'd think, oh, you're way off on the left. But I think you used it deliberately, didn't you? Absolutely. And um, it was a think tank um, that I formed with Ian Duncan Smith. And uh, anyone familiar with um, British politics would know that Ian Duncan Smith is not a lefty. <laughs> He's a former Tory leader. And you know, he's dedicated most of his time as an ex-leader, really, to this Centre for Social Justice. And we deliberately used the left-wing language. And um, we got some uh, flack from fellow conservatives because, you know, they believed in the Hayekian critique of the word social justice. You know, that you it's a weasel word that empties justice of its meaning when you attach a word like social um, to it. But our belief is that... Um, the failure for the conserv- 
if you look at the record of conservative, classically liberal, capitalist, however you want to describe um, movements, parties, we have a better record of lifting the poor out of their poverty and, and, and social mobility, helping them rise up the ladder than any left-wing or socialist you know, idea. These are great times for most people in the world to be alive with hunger falling and poverty uh, falling. And that's because of the unleashing of the forces of enterprise within a within just uh, global trading rules and yet we don't get the credit for it and I think it's partly because um, we don't put at front and center of what our mission is the idea that we do believe in social mobility social justice compassionate conservatism people have tried different ways of expressing it and so um, uh, part of our motivation the center for social justice works cross-party but our motivation was to communicate the idea that Social justice isn't a um, isn't an afterthought, or shouldn't be for conservatives, for classical liberals. Um, it's central to what we what we want to do. We want to build a society where uh, it doesn't uh, where your circumstances of birth um, don't determine where you end up. Hmm. Oh, I absolutely agree with that, and and uh, it's central to our thinking at the Mentis Research Centre. Ian Duncan Smith, incidentally, was a a John Howard lecturer. He gave, I think, the third John Howard lecture. So he's very highly regarded, and the work you do, uh, which I think was pioneering. I mean, the idea that we should gain the moral high ground on welfare uh, and and reform welfare in a way that gets people out of poverty, doesn't just service it, was was a, a very important moment. Uh, uh, you know, the New Zealand government, uh, or the, the, the recently ousted New Zealand government under Bill English and and uh, John Key followed a lot of that through with great results. And we've done it in this country. But this is the point. We don't... One of the great achievements of the last two terms of Liberal government here has been a reduction, a very clear reduction, substantial reduction in the number of people on welfare, and particularly the pe- number of people on long-term welfare. Uh, to me, that's something we should be out there campaigning on. And yet we seem to keep quiet about it. Is that a mistake? Um, I think it is a mistake, actually, and um, I've only been in Australia 48 hours, so I'm going to hesitate to be, um, although I do follow your politics quite closely, and um, partly because I love this country, and uh, alongside Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, John Howard is my contemporary political hero. You know, those three conservative leaders really shaped the destinies of lots of other nations around the world the example they set i think was inspiring to 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 so many people but it does look to me in my early sort of uh immersion in your in your general election campaign that there is um there's a lot of negative negativity about what labor threatens to australia and quite right uh, bill shorten does seem to be a pretty typical tax and spend uh almost a liberal partly because of the way we use that term in the UK, but a tax and spend um, left winger. But I would like to hear more about what uh, liberalism in modern Australia means. And if it's about moving people from welfare to work, that's something to be incredibly proud of. You're listening to the Water Cooler podcast. I'm Nick Cater from the Mendes Research Centre. And our, our guest and welcome again is, is Tim Montgomery. Welcome, Tim. Um Tim, Britain shares a blight uh, of a similar nature to Australia uh, in public broadcasting. The BBC, um, you know, had noble aims indeed and 
still does some very good things, uh, but has become very one-sided in its its uh, political coverage, uh, and particularly on this issue of Brexit. Mm-hmm. How does that happen, and what do we do about it? Gosh, um, all sorts of reasons, I think. Um, one of them, I think, is, you know, it may even have emerged from here, but um, there's this expression, if it bleeds, it leads, in terms of journalism. The, there is a negativity inherent, I think, in, in, in journalism. And I do think there's a lot of bias in the media um, to the left rather than to the right. But in a sense, the underlying biases in news media are the greater ones, the the bias to the new, the bias to the political over the, the cultural, and you know, one of them is the bias to the negative over the positive. And the Brexit project for uh, most of the British establishment has been a project in uh, harm minimization rather than opportunity maximization. Um, and that's been hugely exacerbated by the fact that the BBC is based in the metropolitan centres. It recruits from the metropolitan elites who largely will remain voters. So you have this combination of um, uh, largely covering negative stories and a, remi- and a remainer mindset dominant at the BBC. And so really, since we voted to leave uh, the clutches of Brussels, um, we've had a state broadcaster that really just looks always day by day by day, week by week, at the downsides of leaving. It's relentless. And a recent survey by the Civitas think tank in the UK uh, catalogued to the extent to which um, anti-Brexiteers have dominated the airways because of the framework within which uh, uh, the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, has seen things. Mm. I, I worked in BBC for four years in all, back in the early 80s, and I worked alongside people who simply had never met, couldn't identify anybody they'd ever met who'd voted for Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> um, and I hadn't met too many either, to be honest. Um, but it's it, it's that insular, isn't it? Mm. And uh, But now, of course, what we see is, I think, a more cultural than political bias, isn't it, that's crept in? Yeah, it definitely is a cultural phenomenon. And um, when I was editing Conservative Home, my, my colleague did an analysis of um, the Facebook allegiances of BBC employees. And um, then, I don't know if you remember, they don't have it, I don't think, anymore, but one of the standard questions was whether you were conservative or liberal. And liberal in the US understanding of that word, um, anti-conservative rather than classically liberal. And it was sort of the BBC employees who'd uh, filled this thing in. They were it's seven or eight times as likely to identify as liberal than conservative. And... Uh, it just means, however I think hard you try, if of course you try at all, if however hard you try at all to understand someone's point of view, if your own instincts and understandings are all one way, it, 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 inevitably that sort of worldview colours how you report and how you frame and particularly how you question um, interviewees. And um, it's 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 a continuing problem in in the in the BBC that um, they I t- they take a great deal of trouble about rightly in my view about diversity of gender and ethnicity in uh, the uh, people they employ, but they're completely blind to any ideological or philosophical or religious diversity within their ranks and. Uh, the editor of Newsnight, the former now editor of Newsnight, you know, after Brexit had happened, you know, I talked to him and said, how many Brexit voters did you have on your staff? And there wasn't any of them. 
you know, no one in, and that wouldn't have been unusual throughout the newsrooms that put together uh, the nation's uh, bulletins. I think there are very few Brexit supporters. I think there are very few people who go to church. I think there are very few people who um, have much sympathy or understanding of the business world. And, you know, these biases all mm. add up. And B- it, Business, certainly. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think one thing we notice here with the ABC is, is a strong, uh, well, it's, it's, it's stronger than strong. It's, it's, there, is mm. a, there is a complete faith in the public service. So yeah. everybody at the ABC, the line seemed to have ran a piece the other day on, on, on AM. You know, th- there's a move towards big government. People mm-hmm. hate austerity measures. They want big, more services. Mm-hmm. And um, it seems there's a phenomena here that if you, if, because they are part of that, that okay. network, they, they rely on the, the yeah. taxpayer to, to fund them. They support everybody else who does, and they're very antagonistic towards business in a way. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Well, um, I actually think, I don't know whether you would agree with it, I think the ABC is worse than the BBC in, in my sort of limited experience of it. But um, for keeping up to, with America, with um, Australian politics, I listen to a number of podcasts. I'm a, a great podcast fan. And I listen to, say, The Party Room, and then I listen to um, Andrew Bolt, and I listen to uh, Tom Switzer's Between the Lines, which I don't think is necessarily a typical ABC no. podcast. But it's like, I, li- I find it, because it's like they're describing not just uh, have a different emphasis, but like a different Australia. The, the, yeah. su- the subjects that they address, the takes, are so contrasting. And I, I find I have to listen to th- these di- different podcast to get a, a balanced view but that is a real failure of a public service broadcast in inverted commas that's their job to try and represent all opinions but i just don't get that from abc and i think i think the bbc fails but i get a greater impression that it tries um harder to represent more views yeah i think so i mean the, the saving grace i guess is that the abc is not as dominant in in media and never has been as the BBC it's never been as well funded and and from the early days we had commercial radio and commercial television much earlier than you did not that that's necessarily well the, um, va- the vast majority of broadcast news mm. is provided by the BBC mm. in Britain it is absolutely dominant we've got newspapers fortunately and increasingly social media which provide more balance but no the BBC is much more dominant I think yeah and one point actually we were talking earlier about a book uh Recently, out, I'd recommend Robin Aitken's book, The Noble Liar. Robin Aitken, former BBC journalist who'd written very good critique, written a couple now. Yes, yeah, so one, one, of, one of Robin's key points is, is that they, the people in the BBC have no understanding of the commercial world at all and they become quite antagonistic to it and they're driving an anti corporate agenda. I, I think it's true, but I think it's, there's a broader problem. I wrote a report on. Um, how conservatives, classical liberals, should reform capitalism uh, a few years ago for the Legatum Institute in London. And it was interesting that um, in economic textbooks, there is, it's seven times more likely for economics textbooks to cover the failures of the market than to cover the failures of the state. Now, back to where we were talking about earlier there are sinners in the government as well as in businesses but there is a fundamental and deep bias I think in educational and media organizations towards looking to the problems 
real problems, real failings, market failures. But actually, there is so much government failure, whether it's in the education system or in uh, certain forms of nationalised uh, service pr uh, production um, and service provision, that um, a public service broadcaster, if it was generally living up to that role, would be exposing and examining as well. But it, it largely takes the free press to take to examine the state. Yeah, I, I, I like to call it non-market failure. We, you know, we get <laughs> yeah. plenty of examples, right? You, any number from Australia in the last 15 years of, of overblown government schemes that just went completely off the rails. Mm. But the same in Britain, of course. Yeah. Um, uh, but the, yeah, but this this phenomena of a media that that is fundamentally, in the end, antagonistic towards uh, conservatism. Um, and it, it is just progressive. It's not all public broadcasting, is it? Because if you look at the states, you know, you'd, you'd find a newspaper like the New York Times, for instance, where the same uh, prejudices prevail, don't they? Exactly the same. Yeah, and and throughout Hollywood, and Hollywood is a is a private sector phenomenon. You know, there is an uh, there is an ideas class. Yeah. Um, and we, that, we here we had to go during the Trump Clinton contest. You really had to go looking for things like Fox News, and and I'd often tune into some of the uh, conservative news talk sta stations in in America just to find out what was going on. Mm. You were there at the time, weren't you? In the uh, yeah, I spent 2016 reporting uh, on the Trump Clinton contest for the Times. Well, when I say I spent 2016 there, I did make quite a few journeys back to Britain because it was the Brexit year as well, and I had to make my contribution to the Brexit campaigns. But um, yeah, and I, it's extraordinary. You know, one of the biggest roars of approval. I went to more Trump rallies than I can probably good for me, but I went to so many, and the roar of approval that he gets when he attacks the fake news media, mm. and. The fake news media, if we're allowed to call them that, still don't get why that works. And it's it's not so much because they're inaccurate, which is what they always focus on. They are absolutely worried about, we don't tell untruths, we take um, accuracy, uh, really important. It's because their view of the world is fake, in the sense is that they report certain things, like you know the number of reports you get on transgender bathrooms you know perhaps that's is an important issue I readily concede that but they don't think the fake news covers their own concerns whether they're in the some part of flyover state as it's pejoratively called where um, manufacturing industries in in decline those sorts of issues don't get the coverage that they were that, that, that they thought they deserved that um, the New York Times doesn't really accurately or fairly report on religious um, America, unless of course it's a, a, a abhorrent part of the child abuse scandal that we've seen from from Catholic clergy in, in particular, and it's because people don't feel the elites in on the coasts were reporting the real struggles and the real character of their lives that that's why they thought it was fake news, and and Donald Trump got such resonance for that, and it's that. It's that sort of cultural distance between the elites and the American people, and we see those same cultural distances in other parts of of the world that has helped fuel the populist movement that we're seeing. Uh, you know, but I, I still don't get how they missed it. I mean, it was so obvious. But they're they? still missing it, Nick. Yeah. You know, I don't. Uh, have you seen much reform in the mainstream media? They've, we're seeing all these political insurgencies, but as far as I can see, the media is behaving exactly 
as it did before these political insurgencies. In a way, it's working harder to prove it was right all along. And these unwashed masses that voted for Trump or for Brexit or for anyone else um, need to be reformed or re-educated mm. or, I don't know. What well, it's clear to me that... Hillary Clinton it, called them the deplorables. Yeah, but it's clear to me if they think Joe Biden is the answer for the Democrats, they clearly don't understand the problem. Mm. Uh, they just, they, they think that Trump will be in jail this time next week and the nightmare will be over. But until they get to grips with what's happening here and what why Trump is so popular, they haven't got a hope. Yeah. And I think there are legitimate criticisms of Trump, like his, I think his, his tax cuts largely seem to me to be off the shelf of old Republican, you know, largely benefiting the uh, better off. The, yes, they've had a temporary sugar rush effect on the US economy, but I wonder how lasting and enduring it will be. I think a, a truly post-populist um, Conservative Party would be finding much more uh, room for tax cuts for people at the bottom who are struggling, uh, because that's where our electorates are moving at the moment. Many more working-class uh, uh, voters feel let down by the left on culture issues as well as economic issues. And I think we should be readjusting tax and welfare policies to make it much easier for them, much easier to go from forms of dependence on the state to, to, to independence. Mm. This has been going on for a long while, hasn't it? This sort of great transformation in politics around the world, in the US, in Britain, uh, uh, where people once you would have thought of a solid working class working for the working class party, mm. voting for the working class party, and uh, which shifts in America, but in Britain it would be the Labour Party. Suddenly you find there's staunch conservatives. I mean, Margaret Thatcher tapped into that she a lot, did, didn't yeah. she? Yeah. And no, and no, Howard had his battlers. I think um, Stephen Harper in Canada had the Tim Horton donut shop, you know, customers. Reagan had his Democrats. Thatcher had Essex man. You know, every conservative coalition, successful conservative centre right coalition, has depended on a good slice of lower income voters. But given that uh, the defection of a lot of better off people because of issues like climate change, uh, like same-sex rights. Some of these issues are, have detached, I think, uh, better off, uh, supposedly better educated people from the right. Um, it's more imperative than ever that, that Conservatives recognise uh, an opportunity and a duty to help people who are struggling at the, at the bottom. Mm. I mean, the most recent British election, uh, and uh, I actually argued in a column, I mean, you're not a great fan of Theresa May. We may come onto that in a minute. <laughs> Uh, please, look, she, please, please don't spare me that. <laughs> I've come to Australia for a break from Theresa May. <laughs> she did, she did, in an election, she, she almost lost uh, and performed very badly. And she did actually get, I think, the highest Conservative vote since Margaret Thatcher uh, and gained seats. Now, she gained the seat at Mansfield. Now, for people who don't know it, I mean, when I was working for the BBC in the early 80s during the miners' strike, we'd go up to Mansfield to see the workers running up against the police horses, right? Now, that turned Conservative for the first time ever. And the seat of Canterbury, which had always been a Conservative seat, turned Labour. That, that, is that part of this transformation we're seeing? It absolutely is, although part of that is also the Brexit effect. You had, um, for a period, um, UKIP, the party of Nigel, that was the party of Nigel Farage, um, completely collapsed. Um, the, you know, the, uh, the, the two-party system was restored, really, because the Tories became the party of Brexit and the divisions that uh, we'd seen on the right uh, before then uh, were, were temporarily over and Theresa May was able to reassemble the centre-right coalition. Um, 
but she's she's managed to decimate it since. So um, that's uh, why I want to avoid talking about her. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we will in a minute. Yeah, okay. Just to apply that transformation to the Australian context, this election, you know, as you've you've known since you've been here, there are seats that are solid blue ribbon liberal seats uh, that have never been Labour in their life, uh, including the suit you know, seat of Kuyong, which was held by Robert Menzies for many years, um, now considered, I mean, I think those seats are going to be safe, but uh, they are under threat. We're facing serious challenge there, whereas some outer metropolitan ones that we might have struggled in before are coming our way. Yeah. And for you, um, I think, is it Karen Phelps, the new MP? Karen for, Phelps, yeah. For, 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 for Wentworth, I saw her in a, an event the other day, and uh, she was emphasising climate change and same-sex rights, but also immigration very mm. strongly as well. That seems to be another issue that's detaching better off voters from the Liberal Party. Yeah, I think it certainly is. Um, and, and once again, I think, as in Britain, uh, it, it's not an issue of racism, as people like to claim. It's much more about you know practical things, about how many people can you absorb in a city like Sydney. Which is over, you know, road pressures. Uh, but yeah, I think those are the same issues. But back to Britain and, and Brexit, the effect this has had on the Conservative Party seems to me to be devastating. Can you describe what's happened in the Conservative Party over Brexit? Well, if we begin at that point where we were just at, the, 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 the large number of people who voted for the Tories in the 2017 general election. Um, it wasn't enough to uh, get a majority for Theresa May because she fought such a terrible campaign. But she did manage to unite most Brexit voters under under Tory colours. And and since then, so that really the Tory party became the party of Brexit then. And if you become the party of Brexit and then fail to deliver Brexit, you keep saying we're going to do this and then you do the other, which is what, what Theresa May's record now amounts to. Most notably, we will be leaving the European Union on 29th of March 2019. And I think she said it over a 100 times. And then, of course, you know, we're sat here in uh, the end of April, and we are still in the European Union, and we'll be for another five months at least. And that failure to deliver, uh, a lot of voters feel such a breach of trust. And the other thing is that the Tory party, it's not, not just a question of Brexit, is the Tory party have always had the advantage in British politics as being the party of competence compared to Labour and the left. And we have been anything but competent. I say we, but I'm actually going to vote for Nigel Farage's Brexit party at the European elections. It'll be the first time I've never voted Conservative at, a, at an election. But I feel such is the comp- incompetence, such is the, the scale of broken... Uh, trust with the electorate, the party deserves to be punished. I'll go back to the Conservative Party afterward. This is a this is a one-off, I hope, for, for me. But uh, you can't behave as the Conservative Party has behaved and not expect some sort of um, hit when it, in, the, in the ballot box. Do you think that there, that there is a, an immediate threat to the Conservative Party as a unified party? Is it going to break up? Could, could a party like the Brexit Party actually steal enough people and become a permanent enough institution that it becomes a another force on the centre-right? Well, it's certainly possible. So many odd things happen in politics all the time at the moment. Um, I wouldn't discount it, but the Conservative Party has got a case to be the most successful political party in the history of the 
in the Western world. So it shouldn't be written off too easily. It also has the advantage that compared to the European elections, where I'll be voting for the Brexit party, they are proportional representation based. um, And so it's much easier for uh, parties to break through. Um, when you've got to fight a first-past-the-post system in a parliament of 650 MPs, that's a lot of fighting, a lot of candidates, and you need a certain threshold of support. So, mm. the, It's the, been the, very hard traditionally for third forces to break through, hasn't it, it? It really has, and it took the Liberal Democrats really three or four elections to build up the 50 or so MPs they had when they held the balance of power a few years ago. Um, the bigger danger I don't think isn't so much that... Uh, a small minor party will break through actually into power, but that it will do enough to divide the Tory vote that will end up with Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister, an unthinkable prospect uh, a few years ago. That's that's the real danger. And that might be yet the legacy of Theresa May, that she will have let Jeremy Corbyn, someone who always sides with the enemies of Britain, in my view, in, into uh, the place that wants, you know, Winston Churchill, you know, have it. You know, you can go from Winston Churchill to Jeremy Corbyn. That's quite a descent. Mm. Talk, let's talk about Corbyn for a minute. I, I was in Britain recently, and I met for the first time Corbyn fans. who were actually members of the Socialist Workers' Party, and they joined Labour to help vote Corbyn in. Uh, in a t- traditional tactic of the Trotskyites on the left. You, you must be as amazed as I am that, that this guy who'd been around in British politics for a long time was just seen as one of the grumpy old trots, you know, in the back rooms. He's now leader and could be prime minister. I mean, how, how unusual is that? Well, it's extraordinary, but unusual. But of course, we see um, Bernie Sanders doing very well in, in America. Um, I think you're much luckier in Australia. I don't think I wouldn't put Bill Shorten in that category at all. But he's certainly a much more. I'm, I don't think Paul Keating or Bob Hawke would approve of his kind of uh, tax and spend uh, leftism. So we see different gradations of it in different parts of the world. But he's no, certainly on the spectrum, I'd say. Yeah, on the spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, uh, I would say, you know. It's us. We should examine ourselves on the right for why this has happened. And I think when the global financial crash happened, uh, I think it was probably a time then when we thought, is capitalism in big trouble? And then, of course, it wasn't. You know, the actually the kind of people that were elected around the world, and I'd include Barack Obama in this, um, were largely centrist. People held on for nurse for fear of something worse at that time. I think they wanted grown-ups to stabilise what was then a very unstable, frightening world. Um, I think, though, perhaps Conservatives um, mistook that sort of conservatism, if, if you like, in the electorate, um, and thought and, and took the foot off the gas. And actually, there was a phase when we needed to steady the ship but I think voters still wanted the ship to go in a different direction afterwards. They they recognised the over-financialisation of certain economies, the behaviour of some of the people at the top of capitalism, the complete disconnection between the pay of chief executives in the boardroom and the underlying performance of these companies. These are real problems in the capitalist system. And frankly, I don't think we've done enough to address those failures. We needed to reform capitalism in order for uh, us to save it from the possibility of Corbynite, Sanders-type revolutions. And I think we have been 
inadequately focused on that task. And if we don't focus on that task very soon, um, we will see a lot of the achievements of the Reagan-Thatcher-Howard era lost. Oh, yeah, I agree. I think we completely missed significance. Kevin Rudd, who was then the Prime Minister in Australia, um, one of a series of very bad Prime Ministers. <laughs> um, but Rudd wrote uh, an essay in in Australia, 6,000, might have been a 10,000 word essay, it seemed to go on and on at that time, in which he said this was the end of one era and the beginning of the next. And it was the time when uh, it, the time for social democracy to save capitalism from itself. And, and, and I remember taking the mickey out of this mercilessly. Uh, but I have to now, in hindsight, say uh, he was right because, uh, I mean, not that capitalism has collapsed, but he recognised that from where he sat, this was a, an era, a changing moment, uh, as it's proved to be on the left, hasn't it? They now interpret everything through this capitalism has to be saved idea and i think if you're someone on uh, struggling to get by on welfare and you're constantly told by the right that you know people have to live with the consequences of their actions and you can't be bailed out from your mistakes and then we bail out some of the richest people on the planet at the top of these banks then my god you have a right to be angry and um, I think, you know, we let so many, but perhaps better example than people on welfare is just, you know, some of the smaller businesses that, you know, have gone uh, bust in, in recessionary periods. I know Australia doesn't suffer much from recessionary periods compared to Britain, Britain and America, right. <laughs> <laughs> the lucky country in more ways than one. But um, I think lots of businesses went to the wall in Thatcher and Reagan's years under Bush Senior, um, under John Major. And our message was that was the natural... Uh, way the market worked. Lots of small businesses uh, went down and then we rescued these huge financial institutions that have made profits, super profits for so long and people felt well they never really contributed much to society and yet they were rescued and I think that that and the feeling that is widely shared now ac across the western world that uh, the younger generation will not be wealthier than their parents, that access to housing is now a, pri a privilege, not something that you can legitimately expect. We have to tackle these injustices with a sense of urgency. And that's why I, 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 I think the, the vote for people like Corbyn is completely explicable in those terms. If, uh, if the system looks like it is broken as it is in some parts, um, then, yeah, people are going to vote for, for change. You know, Theresa May's slogan in the last election was strong and stable. And she certainly turned out not to be strong. And actually, if, you, if someone is offering stability at a time when you want, people want change, well, don't be surprised that Jeremy Corbyn gets 40% of the electorate. Yeah. I, the problem for us, though, is, is, is how to recognise these deficiencies if you like, in a, in a market-driven society um, that seem to be often largely their deficiencies because we don't a actually run a true market society. Often they're, they're the consequence of government intervention at various stages. But nonetheless, people recognise these as problems. But how do, we, how do we both attack those without being seen to be undermining the whole idea of a free market, the whole idea that individuals, if they mm. work hard, take risks and expect reward 
I think a lot of it is actually that we need to emphasize competition much more than big business. I think we got to a place where uh, we thought that we had to defend everything that business did. But actually, a lot of business got far too close to government for a start. A lot of big business um, has acted in a anti-competitive way. But, you know, why was Facebook allowed, for example, to buy Instagram? You know, I think you can make all sorts of uh, defences that the monopolies that Google and other big tech firms enjoy are not uh, the same form of anti-competition problem as the big oil and other big businesses of of previous era. I think you make a good case that they are. But but why would we allow these already big companies to buy other big companies, um, further uh, reducing uh, the possibility for innovation? And um, I think one of the great successes of the 1980s was the emerge the reemergence of uh, capitalism and competition but i think we didn't recognize that one of the primary jobs of every government is to enforce competition policy mm-hmm. and protect against oligopoly and um uh, we need to we need we really need to rediscover that yeah i mean you've surely been around the boardrooms and had the same reaction as i do you know yes they think competition is a wonderful thing but they don't want competitors. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Adam Smith warned us about this, you know, more than 200 years ago. He said, rarely do business people meet other than to try and conspire against the public interest. You know, he was not blind to the, you know, problems and ills of, of capitalism. Uh, he recognised there was a role for intervention in certain places. And unfortunately, um, we haven't intervened where... We most needed to intervene. We've intervened in all the wrong places often. Um, but actually breaking up uh, oligopolistic behavior, I managed to say that word correctly. This is our economics training coming, my economics training coming back to me. But um, we have to be um, much more willing to break up the, the big businesses. And so finally to the Conservative Party and its future, uh, I think one of your big projects now, I think you were speaking earlier, was to try and uh, get back to the core of conservatism and and, and um, uh, get some firmer definition around it, I guess, in the hope of reuniting that side of politics. How do we do that? Well, if you're saying this is the final question at the end of the podcast, I think it is for me the biggest, um, the biggest question. And I think one of the... Um, one of the things that I'm, when I launch this project, what I'm going to ask people from all over the world to do, and maybe I should ask you, Nick, if you would be willing to do it as well, is tell me something that you think that you've got badly wrong. Um, you, I thought, very... Um, me as a person or, or well, as a mentist researcher? <laughs> <gonna> give... <laughs> well, you very, I thought, um, honestly, said that you were wrong about what Kevin Rudd said um, at the time of the crash. And I think... If we, at a time when technological, cultural, economic, and social change is happening at the pace that it is, all at the same time, I don't know whether um, you read Matt Ridley or is a fan of Matt Ridley as much mm. as I am, but he has this phrase about ideas having sex with each other. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we are having all this change happening, and those changes are having sex with each other, producing you know, multiplier effects. This is an extraordinary period in world history. 
And if we believe the same things as we did 5, 10, 15, exactly the same things with exactly the same set of priorities, I'm not calling for complete revolution in our principles, but if we don't re-examine what our, um, our policies are and our priorities are, then I think there's an intellectual dishonesty. But I'm afraid I think bec partly because of the way media markets work now, um, any sort of honest open thinking, any sort of change of position can often be punished by uh, those media markets, by uh, donor groups where they hold a lot of power over parties or movements. And so um, this may not be, may not be a, quite the answer you wanted or maybe you don't feel it is an answer, but what I most want to do with this project, what I first want to do with this project is create a space and an encouragement for thinking again. Tell me where you've changed. Tell me what you've got wrong. And um, I think I'm, I wouldn't say I, was, I have turned against free trade, far from it. But the um, philosopher Niall Ferguson, I think, has got it right for me, is that, yes, we should end up in a world of much greater free trade. Yes, we should be open to innovation. But let's just be more aware of how many casualties there are in the transition in the process and be aware that the systems of the state, school and well, schooling, welfare, training, aren't as good as they need to be. And therefore, we need to perhaps just, just be a little bit slower, a little bit more gradualist, a little bit more uh, evolutionary rather than revolutionary in how we move from state A to state B. And so I think we've got a lot of thinking to do about over-financialization, of the economy. I think we've got a lot of thinking to do about um, housing policy and way that uh, house prices have broken up the extended family with huge costs to social provision. We've got to re-measure re things. I think we have a set of uh, GDP and other measures that don't really tell us what's going on in the in, in, in fundamentally in, in society. So that's the sort of thing I want to explore. Well, look, Tim, I, I'm very excited about that because we too think that that's the challenge here really uh, and we look forward to working with you I'd like on that. that and how we take these fundamental uh, values and principles which don't change and apply them to today's challenges so I wish you luck with that and we look forward to welcoming you again on the water cooler thank you